0: The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Chapters 1 and 2. We first see an image flash by of Martin Aerosmith's great-grandmother, a strong, independent pioneer woman who at the age of 14 assumes responsibility for the family, refuses anyone's help, and sets out west for a life of adventure. I think we are meant to assume that this spirit of independence and adventurousness runs in Martin's blood. When we first meet Martin, also fourteen, hanging out at Doc Vickerson's office in a drowsy town in the fictional Midwest state of Winnemac, his life hardly seems characterized by adventure. He is the Doc's unofficial, unpaid, and mostly unoccupied assistant. His most important job seems to be getting the Doc safely to bed after one of his benders. Great-grandma's spark can be seen in Martin's physiognomy, his restless black eyes, his air of passionate variability, his raised eyebrow that gives a look suggesting he could fight. But at this point, he seems more focused on amusing his adolescent friends than pursuing any grand ambitions. Doc Vickerson's office, a direct reflection of the doc's soul, is wild and ragged serving as everything from an operating theater, a poker den, and a house for guns, containing everything from a gold-toothed skeleton to a rusty lancet stuck in a potato. It is the lure to questioning and adventure for a young Martin Aerosmith. Despite the rambling, alcohol-thickened, and ungrammatical nature of his speeches— the doc's encouragement of Martin to study, to set high goals, to become a leaden physician, and to make lots of money inspires Martin with the intoxication of treasure hunting. There is a lonely idealism in the fat, slovenly, drunken old failure of a doc. He loves his old museum, he fancies himself a scientific pioneer, he resents his poverty, and he regrets that no one will ever remember him. He is Martin's earliest influence and one that begins to raise questions. What sort of knowledge should he seek? To what end? For the joy of it? For the money? For something else? We then meet Martin as a junior preparing for medical school at the University of Winnemac, an utterly conventional and Ford factory-like university whose products might rattle a little, but are beautifully standardized with perfectly interchangeable parts. It is a mill to turn out men and women with good jobs, good cars, and good morals, if good is understood as socially approved. Martin's father, his mother, and Doc Vickerson have all died, and the university, with all its colorful and varied characters, has become his world." There is Edward Encore Edwards, the chemistry professor and Martin's idol, who makes authoritative armchair assertions about research, but doesn't do any of his own. Dr. Norman Brumfit, the English professor, believer in a world of dreams, and token campus wild man, who shocks crowded lecture halls by speaking of himself as immoral, agnostic, and socialistic, of which he is none. And Max Gottlieb, the tall, dark, aloof professor of bacteriology who lives in his laboratory, who engages in ambitious experiments, including, we are told, the attempt to synthesize antitoxin, and who scorns popularity or academic success. The idea of Gottlieb captivates Martin, who hangs around the main medical building, trying to catch a glimpse of him. Gottlieb finally appears in the threadbare topcoat of an old professor, but Martin forever remembers him as wrapped in a black velvet cape with a silver star arrogant on his breast. On Martin's first day of medical school, he makes his way to Gottlieb's office with grand visions of Gottlieb recognizing him as a genius, making him his assistant, and allowing him to discover enchanting new germs. The realities of both Gottlieb and his private laboratory are less grand. The test tubes and thermometers are unimpressive and unmagical, and in the light of day, Gottlieb himself is not a cloaked horseman, but a testy, wrinkled, middle-aged man. Martin asks to take bacteriology as a freshman, and Gottlieb refuses, saying he is too young. Either Martin is one of the many ordinary students dumped on him like potatoes, in which case he expects nothing, or he is one of the rare few who actually wants to learn, in which case he will demand everything. He tells him to study physical chemistry, spurning Edwards' organic chemistry as drugstore chemistry, and says to come back in a year when he is better prepared for Gottlieb's rigors. Martin has more questions. Is Gottlieb a heroic genius or a tired old man? Does Edwards know as much as he thought he did? What is truth? Martin's dissecting partner is Reverend Ira Hinckley, the burly, virile, perpetually optimistic, sanctimonious Puritan, and aspiring medical missionary. Ira says that one day they will have the power to heal bodies and ease souls. Martin says he has yet to encounter a soul in one of their cadavers. Hinckley pressures Martin to join the campus medical fraternity, Digamma Pi, where he can help influence the fellows for good. Martin says his goal isn't to influence anyone. It is to, quote, learn the doctor trade and make $6,000 a year, unquote. Martin maintains his independence until Digamma Pi accepts Angus Dewar. Dewar, the handsome valedictorian, whose, quote, cultivated manner of chilled efficiency, unquote, impresses all the professors, and who had already been promised a place in a prestigious clinic, fills him with envy. At the same time, he appreciates that Dewar is one of the few with interests and capabilities beyond smoking cigars and watching football practice. So he meekly follows him in. There we meet the motley cast of characters that are his fraternity buddies—Fatty Faff, the hopeless imbecile and forgiving target of all their jokes, Cliff Clausen, the raucous and roaring campus clown, and Irving Waters, the perfectly normal man, smilingly, easily, dependably dull. In their nightly jabbering, Martin finds, quote, irritation and vacuity as well as serene wisdom, and a thousand paths to a thousand truths, far off and doubtful." The next of my posts was called See It Through. Even without some of the comments I have received from group members, I would have anticipated that three things might alienate you from this book. I want both to express sympathy and to encourage you to see it through. First, the satire. Sinclair Lewis's way of exposing what he regards as society's ills is to mock them humorously. That is not my favored form of expression, as you probably all well know by now. I prefer a more somber, reverent tone. At my own school, I feel like one of my most important jobs is to man the ramparts and keep sarcasm and cynicism at bay. But, Sinclair Lewis's satire is brilliant, and I love witnessing the workings of his mind. I will try to highlight the insightfulness of his quips. So if, like me, you don't especially enjoy being immersed in a world of cynical humor, try to just accept that those are Sinclair Lewis's terms, and try to enjoy what it is he has to offer. Also, Everyone should have an exposure to Lewis, simply because of his unique and incisive ability to satirize. But Main Street and Babbitt are, in my opinion, far more unpleasant to read, despite that ability. They don't have even a tinge of idealism. This has a heavy dose. Second, the moral-practical dichotomy. Each of us brings his or her own philosophic perspective to the novel— and I know some of you are put off by a theme that seems to make material success so completely at odds with idealism. I want to say two things about that. First, most thinkers in history, and therefore most novelists, subscribe to that dichotomy. Therefore, if you are only looking for writers who reject it, you're going to be limited to a very short list, and one that won't include many of history's greatest minds. Second, If a book is worth reading from the perspective of the quality of thought and writing, but contains philosophic ideas I might find objectionable, I embrace the opportunity both to make sure my own ideas are being put to the most rigorous test and to understand the nuances of another's perspective. So, rather than deriving enjoyment from a story form validation of your own ideas, try to enjoy the challenge and the benefit. Of the presentation of a very different perspective. Third, the hominess. Lewis's characters are people next door. Even the good characters are full of contradictions, weaknesses, insecurities, and vices. Now, if they were homey in this way, and we just experienced their flaws as ends in themselves, I would probably find that unbearable. But Lewis is taking us inside the mind of a young man who is immature, conflicted, self-important, and insecure, and having him struggle through those things to define who he wants to be. I deeply enjoy witnessing that struggle, and I like understanding the variety of psychological barriers that might get in the way. This doesn't have to be your favorite novel, but try to read it with an open mind and try to approach it with the perspective of finding what it has to offer, rather than where it falls short. That doesn't mean you can't criticize it. There's great value in that, too. But there's other value to be had, and I don't want it to be overlooked. The last of my posts was called Favorite Among Favorites. In The Art of Fiction, Ayn Rand describes the romantic writer as carefully selecting concretes that capture the essentials of a scene, and the naturalistic writer as indiscriminately cataloging observations. As an example of the latter, she includes a description from Aerosmith. But the funny thing is, though Sinclair Lewis might err on the side of unselective detailing, I find so many of his descriptions illuminating of a specific, purposeful point. And in any case, I enjoy that he can't ever be described as guilty of vague, empty abstractions. That writing vice is, to me, the most nails-on-a-chalkboard intolerable of all. Describing Winnemack, he doesn't call it a small, homey town, with old brick buildings without the stateliness that brick might suggest— He says it is, quote, a dowdy, red-brick village smelling of apples, unquote. When he wants to capture that Doc Vickerson is old, ornery, and rough around the edges in multiple senses of the term, he calls him, quote, scurfier and much less adjustable, unquote, than his old all-purpose barber's chair. When he wants us to glimpse the admirable spark of defiant independence in the young Martin— he says that he has, quote, a look of impertinent inquiry that had been known to annoy his teachers and the Sunday school superintendent. Unquote. When he wants to contrast Martin's conventional and juvenile preoccupations with his budding sense of adventure, he describes him as given to stoning cats and to playing pom pom pull away, and says that the doc awakens in him the intoxication of treasure hunting. Often, I delight in his use of a single word. Romanticizing Gottlieb's tireless dedication to research, he tells of his, quote, long, lonely, failure-burdened effort, unquote. I thought failure-burdened was a potent and inventive term. Sometimes his subtlety is brilliant. To capture Encore Edwards' idle armchair criticism of his peers, he says, quote, he sat before fires and stroked his collie and chuckled in his beard, My favorite part of that is that he sat before fires, not the fire. Sitting before fires is something he does habitually and characteristically. I could go on and on and on, but I will end with perhaps my favorite description in this chapter, for reasons you will understand. One of my favorite books on education is Arthur Bester's Educational Wastelands. In it, he criticizes the elevation of life adjustment courses over the core intellectual disciplines, attacks the proliferation of electives and the decline of meaningful academic standards, and contends that, quote, by misrepresenting and undervaluing liberal education, Educators have contributed to the growth of anti intellectualist hysteria that threatens not merely the schools, but freedom itself. Unquote. I have to pause here to say, Amen. That approach to education is brought to vibrant, palpable life in Sinclair Lewis's description of the University of Winnemack in Aerosmith. Quote, the university has a baseball field under glass. Its buildings are measured by the mile. It hires hundreds of young doctors of philosophy to give rapid instruction in Sanskrit, navigation, accountancy, spectacle fitting, sanitary engineering, Provencal poetry, tariff schedules, Rutabaga growing, motor car designing, etc. It is not a snobbish rich man's college devoted to leisurely nonsense, which is presumably one with real intellectual content and standards. It is the property of the people of the state, and what they want, or what they are told they want, is a mill to turn out men and women who will lead moral lives, play bridge, drive good cars, be enterprising in business, and occasionally mention books, though they are not expected to have time to read them. In other words, to be life-adjusted. And he ends with this poetic description of the outcome. Quote, It is a Ford motor factory, and if its products rattle a little, they are beautifully standardized with perfectly interchangeable parts. Some of you have shared your favorite descriptions, and I'd love to hear more.